0: This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.
1: Shalom and welcome to Practical Spirituality here in Torah in the Holy City of Jerusalem overlooking the Western Wall, or more importantly, the Temple Mount. Uh, Today we're talking about living passionately, and uh, living passionately comes with many uh, ingredients, and it's probably a good idea to take some notes. Uh, while I go, uh, even though it may not come out as such a clean outline, but it's still probably a good idea to write down a few things. Um, first of all, living passionately is another way of just saying living. Because you know when there's passion, you feel alive, and when there's not, you feel dead. So we're just talking about being alive. Not just living passionately is like a fancy way of saying you're feeling alive in your life. And to have Passion in your life, you you. There's a couple ingredients that you need, um, and one of the most important ingredients is that you've clarified uh, several subjects. And one of those subjects is what life's about, and then there's what your life's about, and and then there's also like what you want to, what you're going to do with your life. So first of all, like in general, what life's about, you got to get that clear. Like, what are we doing here? What's the ga- What's the name of the game on planet Earth? So, that's something you got to get clarity on. But then you got your life on planet Earth because you're unique, you're male, you're female, you're, you're um, born in this place, you've got these life skills, you've got this kind of personality, um, these kinds of problems in society bother you as opposed to maybe some others. And, and so, you got to see how your life fits into all this. And then, uh, and then you got to decide what you're going to do. And then once you decide what you're going to do about it, meaning what you're going to do with your life, then you've got to maintain. And so, because even that can get old. You know, you can, you can, most of you in this room would say, if I had all those answers, I would be like all set. But you wouldn't be, because that would get old. It's just the nature of life is that even the most impassioned goals, the most impassioned uh, uh, worldview. You can have will still ha, still has a way of getting old for people, so so we it's not just living passionately, but it's maintaining the passion. You have to you have to have both of those. Make a bracha Now, um, so we, we had a few questions from the the people in the room, and. Uh, we're going to start with um we're gonna start with let's see, what do we got? Oh, yes. Um so that's gonna be a tool. Meditation will be a tool. I the storm is the goal, maintaining Judaism in a non jewish place, living passionately with past choices. Um I think what I'll do is I'm just going to build it up step by step, and we'll we'll see how it goes. So the first step is, what are we doing here on Earth? Now, that's something everyone has to investigate. But uh, I can just say, just for my own personal investigations, it seems that we're here on Earth to do two things. One is to be in a relationship with the Creator, that we're supposed to have a working relationship with God. And the second thing is that we're supposed to fulfill some kind of purpose that we're naturally um, like. Uh, uh, we have a propensity towards fulfilling some kind of contribution that we're here to contribute. So you've got your general relationship with God—that's what I call Jewish—and then uh, if you're Jewish, so you got Jewish. But then you got Jewish, which is what are you doing here specifically? So there's Jewish, and then there's Jewish. What do you? What's your particular task? Okay, so that's what. What we're doing here, and that's what you're doing here. Now, you've got to figure out your own task, like what you're actually supposed to do here. So one of the ways to discover what you're supposed to do here is to get in touch with what bothers you. Now, we're usually trying to get rid of things that bother us, which is good, but we need, you need like a bigger problem, something that really bothers you, that's, that's like a big problem that's worth living for. I Meaning you, you need a problem. Now, a lot of you are thinking, I don't want problems. I don't want problems. In fact, you you probably spend a lot of your time avoiding problems. But those are like little problems. The problems you're trying to avoid are the little things. I want you to have one big problem that makes all your personal problems completely pale in comparison. You know, like uh, I think of my teacher of North Weinberg. Like he had a big problem. And that was assimilation. Jews assimilating. You know, into the Western Gentile culture. And that was a big problem. Now, what do you think that did to all his regular personal issues? Yeah, it just kind of dwarfed them. They, they became uh, not so relevant. I found in general, you're either going to be dealing with your stuff or you can deal with the big stuff. If you deal with the big stuff, your little stuff, you can just kind of flick it off your shoulder. It's not that important. You got to deal with it. You can't. You can't be irresponsible. You got to deal with your stuff. But it's details. It's just details. Now, a lot of men feel, and I'm saying specifically men, uh, but women as well, um, feel the hassle of problems. You know, I think everyone feels the hassle, but I think men problems are like particularly difficult. Like we're, we'll be willing to let them pile up maybe more than women but that's not relevant right now the the bottom line is we feel our problems are hassles and we don't we'll let them pile up and so you got to face the lion in when it comes to problems and also when you when you go for the big problems so the little problems get easier easier to deal with now what's a big problem what's a big problem to you like let's get a couple examples of big problems what do you guys got for big problems and want to share a big problem? Okay, Ellie Mae, what's um, a big problem? Not if you're going to be religious
0: or not.
1: Okay, um, that's a personal. That's more personal, but a biggie. Meaning, I was make the personal one sound small. That's a big personal problem. <laughs> is whether to be observant or not is is a major, you know. But that's personal. I'm talking about right now universal. Like something you're gonna when you died. When you died, people the world was somehow made better as a result of your having been here. You know what I mean? Like, somehow the world became a better place. Yeah, what do you got?
0: Yeah, think? I would say, sort of in line with the word of Noah just the simulation, like, so many people are just not um, either knowledgeable with Judaism or don't even know they're Jewish, and, you know, for someone that did have that privilege to try to give over what they believe is the best type of life, and Makes there's sense. so many people that are, you know, more people going out than going in on a nice. basis. And that bothers you? Yeah.
1: I mean you lose sleep
0: over that? I can't say I lose sleep
1: over it, but it bothers. Me. Okay. Well, I bless you that you lose sleep over it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <think I'm> <laughs> <laughs> okay, Over there. Yeah, what do
1: you got for problems? I would say the state of world morality, that the world has really migrated from
0: judeo Christian values to secularism and it's very hard to see past that and
1: Framework of where we are currently. Okay, I like that. General morality, yeah. I think there's a big lack of joy in the world nowadays, and specifically people connecting uh, to all of their emotions, uh, and by you know, just cutting off from all of their emotions, and as such, they're able to access joy. Not enough joy out there. Now. I like that. Yeah? Um, people giving up on being able to live with children. To what? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah? Problems?
0: The stigma of mental health?
1: S- the stigma of mental health. Uh-huh. Meaning someone who is suffering a mental health issue and feeling that it's a stigma. Right. And doesn't get, like doesn't get the help they need because
0: they're like, oh, it's too embarrassing. Oh, really? Wow. That bothers you. Okay, great. That's a good one. Yeah? I think people are just wasting their lives away on their smartphones or watching television and just uh-huh. like, just zoning out and just like on drugs like literally. people are zoned out
1: yeah. that bothers you and uh the uh, mayor i'd like to hear a problem that's bigger than you if you don't mind the you can think about it too and tell us in a few minutes
0: what's that, that the cultural decline of america so are you from america Yes, sort of what she said, but specifically related to America. I don't care about all the
1: countries. (laughs) But you like North America's decline? Yeah, uh, USA to be precise. So specifically the cultural decline of, you
0: know, United States. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. What
1: do you mean by cultural decline?
0: Well, like you said, the loosening of of like Judean Christian values, which is also just like everything goes, and then the increase the increasing of progressivism, right?
1: Like now you have all these different movements and they're all being for being the most oppressed and then I don't know. All... You watch uh, Jordan Peterson videos? Um a few, but mostly Sargon of Akkad. the name. Sargon of No, that's a goodie. It's a good,
0: good one. Come
1: I will. Uh, you have my WhatsApp number. Will you send me uh, just his name? Because it was a little hard to understand. Sargon.
0: Sargon of Akkad. It's not his literal name. He's using the pseudonym. He's good? Yeah.
1: Sargon of Akkad. You can still WhatsApp me now. Anyway, the, uh, I'm just afraid I'm going to forget about Sargon. So, you heard of Sargon of Akkad? I was curious. Anyway, um, okay, great. So, that's a good purpose. That's an excellent purpose. Yeah, you got one? I can link that with lack of literacy. Sure. That bothers you? It does. Okay. Anyway, all yeah. Say terrorism. terrorism? You don't like terrorism?
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> really bothers you? A lot of terrorism in the world. Lack of ambition. What's that? Lack of ambition. I think that bothers you and you. No, I think in general, that's Yeah?
0: Uh, uh, Lack of ambition, okay. A big one for me, actually, I just remembered, is prisons being treated just as uh, pens for criminals rather than places for reform so that they can be reintroduced into society. Uh huh.
1: That's nice. Yeah. I'm in the middle of a screenplay on this, writing a screenplay on this subject. That's a great these subject. The you lose I'm not sure what the question is. Yeah, because that you lose sleep over. Everyone who raised their hand, hand, this is what bothers them specifically. You worry about it, people in jail? Yeah. You, you have to be worried about, who do you worry about? What do you worry about? Personally,
0: the biggest thing I think outside of my own personal problems, the gunless.
1: Galut. Galut, do you, mean, do you mean people outside the state of Israel or are you talking more the spiritual Galut that we don't have <laughs> to Bet- Migdash? Yeah, Even about. the people in the state of Israel, the state of Galut that we're in, that, that
0: everybody's in their own suffering.
1: Excellent, excellent. Okay, so listen up. I'm not going to take any more right now, but what I would like to say, <laughs> what I'd like to say to all of you about the problem you mentioned is make your life about solving that, and you will win the game of life. You will have the most meaningful existence. You make your life, you become the solution. You become that solution. Now when I say that, I don't mean specifically that's who you are now, that's not who you are. But you really put your energy, resources, educate yourself if necessary, gather a team together if necessary raise money if necessary but but don't go to sleep until you've done a bunch of stuff for it and you will have the most meaningful life in the world and you'll just have such a meaningful life you and I know all of us like we don't like those problems and you know obviously if we're looking at a news website we'll likely click on those stories that the problems you mentioned you'll likely click on those stories but that's not going to give you a meaningful life. What's going to give you a meaningful life is that you wake up every day to solve that problem. And there are people here who don't have don't feel any real problem in the world. And they and they, you'll notice that those are the people who aren't feeling their lives are very meaningful. Problems are good, that's the point we got to get out of this. The problems are good. Now we of course don't want to there to be problems. We want everyone to be literate. We want world peace and we want joy and we want penitentiaries to be rehabilitative. But, but we're, um, these are things we want, but but they're, um, but we gotta, we gotta, we gotta do something. If you don't have something set up as a problem you're living for, so then, you know, it's going to immediately affect your life. You know how meaningful your life is. It? And by the way, I know a lot of observant Jews who become observant, and Judaism becomes very important to them. But they did not do anything about the fact that their brothers and sisters are assimilated, and they didn't do anything about that. I know people who didn't. I know people who became fully observant, and their siblings and their parents, they never confronted them. With any of the information, they never, you understand, they never like made an effort to wake them up. And I said to them, "Why aren't you waking up your family?" And they're like, "We have the kind of family dynamic where, like, you know, yeah, what's the term for you know, don't touch uh, <laughs>
0: dysfunction,
1: teach dysfunction, teach their own. Yeah, that's the one. I'm from a teach their own family. Like, you don't mess with people in my family." Acceptance is a totally separate subject than this. This is not about acceptance, but they do get blurred. <laughs> you can easily blur acceptance with, uh, with uh, worldview and stuff. But the, um, I, I just on a personal level, when I became observant, I could not sleep at night without my brothers, I, we don't have sisters, but without my brothers and my parents becoming observant, I just couldn't sleep. And I wasn't gonna sleep until that got taken care of. Now, mm-hmm. by the way, I didn't, I can't control whether they're observant or not. The only thing I could control, control was how much exposure they get. I can, you can only really expose someone to Judaism. So I, I, my job, no, you can't fully control, exposure, right. You got to be careful. And I, I wasn't being careful. I was being young and dumb. And, and I was bombarding them with information and sending home. It was before internet. So I was sending home 25 page letters and stuff, you know, to the family. And anyway, but I could not sleep without it. And they were like, what in the world? Because I'm, I'm a very influential person in general. I don't mean right now. I'm saying my character is influential. So like the stuff I influenced people before I became observant, God should please forgive me. Because there are literally people dead and in jail. There were people, many people dead and several in jail, <laughs> just from my influential character. And I wasn't trying to influence anybody. I was just when I get excited about something, I tell everybody. Now in the old days, I used to get excited about some pretty strange things. <laughs> now, anyway, um, so, what you say?
0: Die. I'm sorry. Do
1: what? <laughs> how they died? You can ask me personally. Everyone wants to know how they died. Yeah, I uh, anyway, um, the, I just—I was. This is all just leading up to a joke, and the joke was that. When, my, when I finally became observant, because don't forget, who am I going to mostly preach what I'm inspired about? To the people I'm closest to, which are my brothers and my parents. And I'm number three in the family of four boys. So it's not like my six-year-old brother, that my brother six years older than me should be influenced by me. But I'm really influential. So I like push hard when I'm excited about something. And uh, by the way, in Judaism, I've had to shut it down, my influence. I've had to shut it down. Why? Because if you become observant because of my influence, so are you really making a big choice? It, you realize the more I influence you, the less choice you have, which means the less reward you have, and I mean the less meaningful it is. You get that? So, like, it's only since I found Judaism. Not at the beginning. At the beginning, I was just an idiot, and I was like pushing it on everybody. But uh, later, I realized I'm taking. A, I'm not giving. I'm removing. I'm like taking away something. And so, I realized that I got to be like way more savvy here. Because on the one hand, I got to inspire you. On the other hand, I can't take away your free will because then what, what was the point anyway? God only created the world for free will. So I need to give you max free will and max inspiration. But leave that moment of choice right in your hands. Your hands are the hands of choice. And that you, you got to make that choice. And so, so I've, I've learned over the years how to like dance this dance to make sure people are getting max um, choice, max free will while at the same time being inspired. Yes. Yeah, I just to know, um, basically... Oh, I didn't get to the joke. So when I finally... <laughs> sorry. When I finally became observant, you know, and I, like, next year I got a beard and payas and sitses and everything, my family was like, look out, you know, because all the other crazy stuff, you know, anarchism and, like, every other thing I thought of, communism, Marxism, like, everything else I was doing... They were, you know, they, yeah, that's what they were saying. They were just like, oh, God, like, they, my family was just like, like, hey, here we go again. And then they would, of course, ignore me. But when it was Judaism, so it was like, this was their own backyard, you know. It was like, it was their stuff. It wasn't no longer just my stuff. This is, you know, this is your stuff. And so when I was coming with their stuff, all of a sudden it got Freaky. Because they couldn't just write it off. I mean, this is, this is their Judaism. This is their stuff, not my stuff. And the other stuff was definitely me pushing stuff that I was into. But now it was like their stuff. And that freaked them out big time. And, uh, but it had a huge impact. And to this day, I mean, uh, my mother has a, a minion in her house uh, once a month. And it's a roving minion, and she's created it. So we have a safer Torah in our living room and with a minion in our house. Uh, my oldest brother is a, a roaming, traveling minstrel going from city to city to city to city, two to three Shabbat's a week teaching about Shabbat. And uh, he's, he's basically a rabbi without ordination, but uh, he teaches just, just as much as I do as a rabbi. But he, he's a, basically a Torah machine. And, uh, and then my other brother is a Breslov Chassid campus rabbi, vice president of Chase Bank in Beverly Hills and he's uh, he's uh, you know but he's like an incredibly spiritual meditation leader like incredible like cult figure and uh, but today he's more on the business side of life and uh, after 15 years of campus work and my other brother Joey is like he's, he is the address for like Jewish holidays in his community and stuff and, and so hands off this hands-off type family stuff is—is I—I is, uh, I, I totally hear it. Like, what are you supposed to do to influence your family? Like, that's when the dynamic is hands-off. What are you supposed to do? So, you know, that's tough, and you you are going to have to be extremely um, sensitive to the family, but at the same time, enough in their face that you don't have tragedies take place, because there are tragedies. I mean, think about it. The, just uh, for example, anyone want their siblings to be divorced in a drag down, horrible ch- child custody battle that goes on for ten years, and and you know, and you know, does anyone want that happening to their siblings? No one wants that happening to their siblings or their children. But meanwhile, in the secular world, there's some some cities. I don't know what's the divorce rate. L.A., for example. Anyone know the divorce rate in L.A.? I don't think it's eighty percent, but it's it's high, it's very high. Now, what is the divorce rate of the observant community, which happens to have gone up recently? Um, but but what is it? What do you think the divorce rate is? Thirty percent? No. Yeah, maybe even between five and ten, maybe. Five and, which is bad. Like we're embarrassed. Like this has gotten bad that there's such a divorce rate in my community where I live um we I live in a community in Absolutely. Jerusalem we'll have bad marriages with that kind and their status
0: and the vows to me that it is. Sorry to get divorced from the marriage. Like in the Muslim community you find that
1: but they're not allowed to get divorced. divorce. So right, with Jews Jews you're right. allowed to get divorced. In my community we have we have a with we have a zero divorce rate. <laughs> There's not one divorced couple in our entire community. It's, Wait, it it's in the middle of no no it's not five people it's a, there's a couple hundred of us a couple hundred families and n- zero divorces and you want to know something else which is Where? it's in uh it's it's a it's in the it's it's a little sh- it's like, yeah yeah it's like a uh, it's an interesting little community it's in Jerusalem in the center of town it's in Nachlod. it's a Yiddish shtetl in Nachlod. In the middle of Nakhla, yeah. With all the holy hippies and stuff. And, w- it's made up of, made up of yeah, It's made of courtyards. Anyway, there's six courtyards that are fully observed. But you want to hear another weird detail? Listen to this. It's the only community on earth where there's no kids off the path of Judaism. No kids off. The, meaning no one's ever... It's got a zero attrition rate. They? What?
0: They're younger,
1: they're older. All ages all ages. This, you know how old the neighborhood is? 200 years old. You guys don't anybody else
0: in. No, it's what? Guys
1: don't want right here to <laughs> it's just people in our community <laughs> apparently love their spouses and they love Judaism, you know. It's but maybe, the, maybe it's just adult music. Well, what's amazing about our neighborhood, and this may have a lot to do with it, not about the marriages, but about the fact that kids don't go off the dirt, is that listen to what surrounds our neighborhood. You have the wildest part of all of Jerusalem called the shuk which has now become this like constant discotheque party okay but it's a but even when it even when it wasn't a wild discotheque party it's still a shook is a free for all shook means free for all so it's free for all on the grippa side then you got Ben Yehuda street King George Ben Yehuda street on the other side then you got just you know the random Betsalel street or whatever over there. It's nothing really. And then the bottom is Gansaker, which often has, you know, it's just a it's our biggest park in Jerusalem, often with music festivals and cool stuff going on there. In other words, our neighborhood is completely isolated from the Haredi community. And it's, uh, so we also have no burning trash cans, no constant announcements, (laughs) no announcements. Uh, You're not allowed to rent to any of the, you know, what it's called a canai or a zealot. People who are zealots. You know what those are? Zealots? People are overzealous types. So there's a there's a moratorium. You're not allowed to rent or sell to anyone who's a zealot for any cause. Like you have to be totally committed to Judaism, but not overzealous. If you're overzealous, you're you're not gonna be able to get an apartment or a house in the in our community. Anyway, but you know what? But there's something about When you raise kids there, like you're walking your kids to school and there's like a a slugfest going on between like a husband and wife right outside your house, which of course would only happen if you're surrounded by a secular community because... There may be slugfests in the observant community, but you don't do it on the street, you know? (laughs) I don't think there are in the observant observant community. Or you're walking your kids to school and you have to, like, step over the drunk guy who passed out last night, (laughs) you know? Try not to step in his vomit, you know? And so your kids have this, like, a very firsthand experience of... Yeah, well, the rest of the world and what it's going through. Now, of course, they probably only get to see the worst. They don't get to see the better stuff, but... And then everyone's walking scary dogs, you know, and like, dogs are always scary, all the neighbors and walking scary dogs, and and then, whatever. I think they get inoculated a bit, and they get scared a bit, Um, whereas when you're raised in a fully observant giant Haredi population, um, the secular world looks like um, exciting. It looks exciting. There's no one in my neighborhood who thinks the secular world's even remotely exciting. And remotely. In fact, my children asked me to stop drinking beer in the Shook. <laughs> Which I think is exciting. But they're, they're, like, they're like, you want to drink a beer, go somewhere else. Not in the Shook. But we have the best beer in the world, in the Shook. Handmade Israeli craft beer. You know. There's like 40 styles of beer you could have all on tap. So I thought I was like born in heaven that this happened 100 yards from my house. But my kids have let me know that they're actually they're cool about it. Just after dark, beer bazaar, beer bazaar, yeah, like beer bazaar. I mean, I was like the rabbi of beer bazaar. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Um, yeah, you were saying,
0: yeah, um, I was saying, uh, yeah, basically before uh, you're saying one person has like these things that they're living or you know they live for they can't sleep over and everything. and let's say this is their goal in life, right? Yeah. And they're working hard at it, and they really try to make a difference. But ultimately, let's say they're not successful. Would you say that's a failure, or would you say that at least they lived, kind of, going towards something? They had like. That oh, had but conditions? they didn't
1: succeed in that.
0: Um, yeah, let's give it. Give an example. Let's let's say someone someone mentioned like um, the culture. Too much Yeah, like the culture. What? Someone didn't like the culture or something. Oh, the U.S.
1: Yeah, something like that. Yeah, that decline of culture. decline of culture. So, so if he tried to fix the like, decline like, of
0: culture but failed. Yeah. So I'm saying it's like these are lofty okay, goals. It's possible to fix it. Right. So I'm saying these are lofty things to, to try to do. Right. So how do you explain when someone doesn't actually hit that in terms of like looking back?
1: Uh huh. That's that's how you That's an excellent question. I like that question. You. Um, when you fail, so it doesn't matter really. <laughs> Because one of the main things I mentioned about it was you're going to have a really meaningful life, and you can have a really meaningful life without succeeding on your big goal. You know, you, there's a couple seats if you want to sit. The, you, you understand you're you're going to have. You're just so tall. We need like a special seat for you. This is your spot right here. You can turn your chair, else just turn it. So. About the failing in the goal? Yeah. Okay, let me just finish that. Is you're still going to have an incredibly meaningful life. And everyone you touch, even though you failed in the big picture, but you succeeded in the small... Is that what you're going to say? Yeah. Go ahead, say it. You yeah. hit it. You're on. Oh, me? Yeah.
0: I was going to say that even if you the bigger picture, like uh, the idea you want to solve this problem, or you know, these, these huge problems, if you, if, you, if you touch individual people and you affect small changes, you feel like you succeeded. Right. And that's how things get changed, is by enough people changing their minds or yeah. doing so or passionate about.
1: Very well said.
0: Yeah. Uh, to put that into the concrete, Reb Noah Weinberg at the end of his life felt as if he failed in the battle against assimilation. And <laughs> like, here we are. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and he did. He failed. He, he, he failed because he's still a he did a good job. He did. But he, he, he made he a dent, didn't. I would say, a sizable one. And yeah. I think that dent is representative of every single person who walks into this classroom day in, sure. day
1: out. I agree with you. Learns. And you want to know something on Facebook? They have uh, different things in the, meaning the office, not Facebook, your phone. In the actual headquarters of Facebook when the people work there, and they have signs on the walls that say, fail hard. Yeah. Fail hard. Meaning, if you're if you're not trying hard enough that you're if, if you're not trying hard enough that you're not failing enough. Because think about it: if you really try anything hard, you're going to fail many times because you don't know what you're doing. You're just putting it out there, and you're, it's going to fail. So, so they're saying to their employees: we want you to fail because we want you pushing limits. If you're pushing limits, that means you're outside the range of what you know. And if you're outside the range of what you know, of course you're going to hit a lot of walls. But we're going to be, but as a, in the whole, we're going to be a cutting edge company if we just fail enough. So the failing's almost like you've got to hit a critical amount of failure to, uh, to be called successful. So, so that's another answer, just go fail. <laughs> like Just go fail. Oh, yeah. Like Rav Noach failed, uh, like uh, miserably, and and now look, you know, like, well we're still here. You know, all of his students who he touched are still somehow influencing sometimes
0: people.
1: It is a not sometimes you're always getting it wrong when you're yeah,
0: failing. That it's not a practical detail you're getting wrong, but you're on the wrong path. Oh so, yeah, sure. It's a failure if you give up, otherwise
1: it's not. It's just you mistake until you improve. Right. Also, I, I just want to mention that my mind was just on yours, is that it's really important to have a mentor, because if you're failing in something, it might be a sign that you're just going the wrong way. And that's where mentors are going to come in. So you say, you'd speak to them, you say, this just isn't working. So a proper mentor with a lot of good life experience is going to say, it's not working now, but keep going. Or you say, yeah, because God's saying no. And by the way, in case any of you wanted to know the hint of when something's like failing over and over again, or things are going wrong. How do you know not to keep pushing? How do you know it's not? How do you know it's not a sign to keep pushing, or it's a sign to turn around? You ever thought about that? Maybe you don't. Well, there's a there's a principle. How to know whether to keep going? Was that someone's question? The uh, how do you know? What's the sign? So I mean, what is the sign telling you? So I'll give you one hint: is if what you're doing is bringing more light, meaning it's like a mitzvah, it's bringing more light. Well, more light will be created even more if you have to deal with obstacles. If you're going to hit some walls on the way and you've got to break through there, the, uh, you're, it's going to be even more light. I mean, if you're going for light, so hitting some obstacles is going to create more light. Whereas, if you're not going for more light, you're just going for a day at the beach. But everywhere you go, like, like you get a flat tire and now it's like there was a, uh, a suspicious object and now there's like, you know, I don't know, a bus-like stalled in, you know, in two lanes while changing lanes. And and like, you're already driving 45 minutes, you still haven't left Jerusalem. Well, God's saying something to you, perhaps, because you're not going for more light, you're going for more, maybe some more sunlight. You're going to get some rays and you're going to do some swimming. But so I've been using this as a principle for years, that every time I'm going for something for me, meaning just what we'd call an elective, it's something I'm electing to do. Um, if it's an elective and I see everything's going wrong, I turn around. Mm. If, on the other hand, it's a mitzvah, it's, I'm here, I'm going for the light, man. I'm going to, like, create a better world out of this thing. And, and then things are going wrong, so that's just God adding light to it by putting some stuff in the way. And that's why the word, the word in Hebrew for when God's getting in the way of a good thing is called miniyah, or in plural, miniyot. It means obstacles. And it has the same letters as the word na'im and ni'imut, pleasantness. So so the word for miniyah is the same word for na'im. Like that one, David? I saw I got your attention there. Yeah. So na'im and ni'imut. Yeah, I think he was first.
0: Yeah. Is there such a thing as a mitzvah that's not your mitzvah to do, which is why you're encountering
1: Oh yeah, sure. Uh, Pushback. It could be also, yeah. It's just not your mitzvah. Right. It's just how, not your mitzvah. It's, uh, how do you uh, distinguish certain, what's your mitzvah? Yeah, that is you. Is, you, you, you can never that. say something's not your mitzvah. So you do a little, or you get others to do it. Uh-huh. Like for example, um, a lot of people think it's my mitzvah to raise money for their cause.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Okay. Now, and for anyone who's had who's I've influenced your life at all since we've met, or you've seen me online or whatever, and um, can you imagine if I took more time out of me helping people in the way I help people through my work, would you say that's okay if I take time out to raise money for random causes of a family who's making a wedding? Should I be taking time off this? It's not the right guy for that. But do I have to make some phone calls? Yes. I can't say it's not my mitzvah because the mitzvah came right to my face and this person's asking for help and they asked me to make a call or two. Okay, so you know what I do? I go on WhatsApp. And I scroll down a bunch of people and I just find one or two of them and I just hit it and I say, this guy needs some dough, he's making a wedding, what can you do? Hit another guy, this guy's looking for some dough, making a wedding, what can you do? (laughs) And then I go right back to what I'm doing.
0: Because it's
1: not my mitzvah, but I can't just turn it down either. What I meant by that though is what if you set out with the best of intentions to do a particular
0: good thing because you're inspired to, but then you encounter a lot of blowback... Is it possible that it's a sign that it's really not your task? Somebody else is meant to do that, and you should maybe navigate to a different good cause? Probably. I
1: like that. But that's where mentors come okay. in. Okay, yeah. you got to go to your mentor. Now, um, guys, do you know what I'm going to do right now? I'm just going down the list, and I'm going to give one line for everything, and I'll be careful with the age limit here. Teen chastity, I just want to mention that. Um, every single person in this room, besides this young man back there, my friend, um, would be married right now. How old are you? 18. What? 18. He'd be married already two years. Every girl in this room, would already you'd already have three or four kids. Because you know, you know. what happened was, a couple hundred years ago, women got married, uh, depending what community you're from, but it was somewhere between 12 and 16. You know, But usually 14 was, 15's already a bit over the hill. And uh, <laughs> and the men would get married between like 16 and 18, 20's kind of over the hill. And the uh, that's the way it worked. Still in my community, 20s over the hill where I live, there's very few people 20 and single. Of the men, women forget about it. The girls get married. My daughter was engaged in my community in 17, so she had she already had a child at 18. Now the but forget that. That's over the hill because 200 years ago, people got married young, so there was no such thing as the crisis of teen chastity for Jews who, you know, want to keep Torah and they want to stay pure for their marriages and stuff. You didn't, you went straight from being a child in your parents' home to getting married. That's the way it was. Now, what are we supposed to do now? We're not in that world. We don't live in that world. Now we're kind of stuck here dealing with like wanting our marriages to be pure, but at the same time, knowing that might be far off. So here's the tool. I'm going to give a quick tool. And that tool is to make a deadline. You need a deadline when you're getting married. So everyone leave the room today. When you leave the room today, there's still another class, but when you leave the Asia tour today, everyone leaves with a deadline. I'm getting married by this age. Meaning if you're 18, you're getting married by 19. If you're 19, you get married by 20. If you're 20, you get married by 21. And ignore the norms. Ignore what anyone says. Because you know what? They, 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 you're doing... The, all the people who say, well, that's not normal you're doing them a chesed because they're going to have less hell later because you were one less person who was influenced by them to to get married later. Mm -hmm. So now you would all say to me, well, I'm not ready. So who says I'm going to be ready in a year? And And I'll tell you this, don't make a deadline. I promise you you will not be ready. Make a deadline. I promise you you will be ready. Human beings work great with deadlines. If you need to be ready for marriage, well, make a deadline and you will be. You want to never get ready for marriage? Don't make a deadline. Don't make a deadline. You will never be ready for marriage. That's just the way it goes. So I know people in their 30s who aren't married for marriage because they don't have a deadline. We never want to grow up, guys. We're all Peter Pan. And we don't want to grow up and we want to... and But yet we want to be married. But you can't have it at all. So the way you grow up is by giving yourself how a, a deadline. We deadline.
0: Like example, it doesn't have...
1: It, two years is too much. One year is maybe not enough. You figure it out. How old are you?
0: <laughs> two years,
1: two years is probably the outer edge for you. You want to make it twenty-one? You'll be ready by twenty-one. But if you made it twenty, you'll be ready by twenty. And why well, not?
0: It's not like that because it's not a matter of character development. It's also a matter of deciding whether you're religious or not. I really have to, to decide that before I get into the relationship.
1: You got. You don't need two years for that.
0: I don't know how long it'll take. I, I could.
1: Have it down at the end of next year. If you spend one hour with me, you you need one hour with me. <laughs> <laughs> not not about whether to become observant or not. We won't even discuss whether to become observant or not. We need an hour. You need an hour with me to call you out on your scrap without the s. And and then, the okay, and we'll spend that hour together. <laughs> clean up your approach then go do it, which uh, you could probably do it, you could probably knock it off in a month or two or three max. Would you say, Eisenberg, like, how long does a guy need? I mean, this is what he does all day with these guys. A girl. I don't do this much. He does it a lot in L.A. You know, so...
0: 45 minutes. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Going crazy, you're at peace. And now uh, it's hard not to get caught up in things, but that's why uh, breath control, is meditation over here, Breath control and disciplined thinking go a long way. So I understand you're all going to get swept up in all kinds of things when things get hysterical in life, and that's okay. But you probably aren't using breath. Con- breath. I mean, you're not using breath, and you're probably not using disciplined thinking because you don't have a lot of control of your breath, and you are not disciplined in your in your. You're not a disciplined thinker. So. Meditation develops breath control and it, sorry, am I saying breath control? What I mean is like good breathing uh, techniques, breath techniques and uh, mental discipline and what happens is later when the storm's around you you get, you just immediately know because what you need to do is develop a zero tolerance for stress zero tolerance for stress now if I'm hiring someone to work for me, do I want them to have a low tolerance for stress or a high tolerance for stress? if I'm hiring them I want him to have a high tolerance for stress, which is very mean. That's very mean. That's not nice. Because do I personally want a high tolerance for stress or low tolerance for stress? Low. I want to notice it and deal with it and move that stress out of my life. I don't want to be one of those people who dies of a heart attack all of a sudden because he has such a high tolerance for stress. He didn't even notice he doesn't even know when it's stressful until everything's caving in. That's a high tolerance for stress. You don't want a high tolerance for stress. So we get wrapped up in things because we don't even notice we're getting stressed out while we're getting stressed out. And so, and so you want to develop such mental and breathing techniques and discipline that, that when things get stressful, you immediately... For example, if I take a deep breath, it means something entered the environment that was stressful. So my wife will look at me and say, you just took a deep breath. And she's like, what just happened? And I'm like, I don't even know because I've gotten my life to the point where I take the deep breath before I've even registered intellectually. My instincts already tell me you're going to need more oxygen for something that just happened. Now, I'm not yet aware of what happened, but something did happen. Either someone walked in or there, or there was a, a caller ID that, that, you know, it's debt collection or just kidding. It was a caller ID <laughs> that was like that kind of number makes me a little nervous. Now, I have no idea who it is. It's 03. 0 is Tel Aviv. Well, who do I know in Tel Aviv? Nobody. So, just kidding. <laughs> I know a lot of people in Tel Aviv, but, but maybe it's some government agency that's, that's trying to like, who knows what. So, so whatever. But I took a deep breath. Now, my wife's like, what's just happened? I said, I have no idea. And then I said, oh, you know what? I, I, I had a zero three. 3 I wonder what that was all about. She said, well, call it back. I'm like, no. Just kidding. So, anyway. Oh
0: yeah, I was wondering, was that your only um, tip for um, tip for his question about how you know to maintain like Sherman as a team? So your only one was a dead set of deadline.
1: It was just no. Mm-hmm. I was saying I was okay. going to say a little thing for everything. That was my oh. li- that was just my little thing. Oh. Okay, I'm storm. Maintain your Judaism in a non-Jewish place. The way you do that is by staying in a fully observant community for like three years straight. And then, um, but with the intention that this is all in preparation for you to be able to maintain outside that place. And then you, and then go out there, you'll fall badly, but you'll, you'll eventually develop the muscles for living in that place. Like for example, um, where you live in LA, I would survive two weeks maybe. Meaning, for me to stay on my level, where I am here in Jerusalem, where you almost need no muscles, especially as a married Hasidic man, you know, like, I need, like, no muscles here. So I don't really have any muscles. So I'll be fine in L.A. for two weeks. After those two weeks. Because you have certain muscles that you just don't need in Jerusalem. They're not necessary for living as an observant Jew in Jerusalem. So, So you need to develop the muscles... First of all, you need to be surrounded and totally immersed in a very holy environment with the intention, preparation to go, be going out there. You'll fall hard. You'll rebuild. And when you rebuild, you'll rebuild with the proper muscles for that particular environment. It's this is like every creature that, you know, like Shamus, you know, the, they don't live as long in tanks, you know. They go from 80 years down to about 30 when you put them in a tank. But the... Uh, but they do adapt, and, they, and it's, a, it's a process, you know, to be able to live in that pool. And uh, why anyone would choose to live in that I don't pool? Want
0: to be <laughs> yeah, why anyone would
1: choose to live out there? I have no idea. I'm um, living passionately with past choices. Um, the way you do that is uh, is very courageous reevaluation. You have to you have to stop and reevaluate your past choices. That's a and um, and that's that's the main thing actually. is just. It's just you gotta constantly put it on the table again for reevaluation. And, um, and they said, I'm very lucky. For example, I made choices about Judaism, but because I work at Ashatara, Torah, and people are constantly asking, like, "How do I know there's a God? How do I know Torah is real? How do I know there's a God? How do I know Torah is real? How do we know the transmission is real, like, of the rabbis? How do we know it's not broken telephone?" So I'm constantly hearing that every single day. So I have the reevaluation built in. You get that? It's built in in my life because of my career choice of being around Aishatara. So, so you you got to have that reevaluation built in your own life. I have it externally. If you don't have it externally, you better create it internally where you're going to reevaluate. Okay. then the next one, living passionately, what this is all about. The next one is emotion versus logic. Is um, is that we we want to give a lot of weight to our emotions, which I'm going to call instincts. When your instincts are saying something about choices, people, relationships, all these things, and when your instincts are speaking, which is the emotion kind of thing, you want to listen to those instincts. However, the, um, when you, now I'm listening to it, then I take my brain and say kosher or not kosher, Mm -hmm. right or not right. And then, (coughs) so instincts, if you cut off your instincts, then you're really lost. I know people who only did the right things but lost their um, life, meaning they lost their fire. And so they just shut their fire down. And so now they've lost their instincts and they don't have, they're not in touch with their emotions and their Judaism's quite cut off when it comes to like connection. And so the emotions is really, really important. And so you got to honor that. You got to listen to that. But you have to. It always has to pass through the filter of truth. If it can't pass through the filter of truth, and you may need a rebbe for this, you may need a mentor to help you filter. But if it can't filter through your mentor, and your mentor says, mm, "I see why you get that instinctually," but this is going to be this is going to be a wipeout. If I can use a surfing term, it's going to wipe you out. So then you're not going there. Uh, regret versus guilt. It's just I think that's enough to know that distinction and living in the moment we're not doing that right now thank you very much everybody shalom it was a pleasure
0: you've just experienced another torah class brought to you by torahanytime.com